24-year-old Lorianne Andrizi was driving home after dark one fall night in 1989 when something strange occurred. The trip was a familiar one, down a bumpy two-mile stretch of country road in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, roughly 50 miles west of Milwaukee, that she frequented on her way home from the bar and restaurant she managed. What wasn't familiar this evening, however, was the creature she happened upon hunched over in the road. Andrizi, a single mother, would later recall that the encounter lasted approximately 45 seconds, more than enough time, she said, to change her life. Lori instinctively slowed her car as the creature bowed its head to take bites out of a small animal in the road. Confused and curious, she flicked her vehicle's headlights to high in order to get a better view of the animal. It was enormous, with a strong upper body and a distinctly canine head. It had shaggy, gray-brown fur, a long snout, and was kneeling with its legs folded behind it. The arms were bent at the elbows, palms upward, holding the road-killed animal to its mouth in an unnervingly humanoid way. As the creature looked toward Lori, she noticed that its eyes shone yellow. It started in her direction and Lori, six feet away and terrified, put her foot down hard on the gas pedal and didn't stop until she reached her mother's house. That's the story that she told Linda Godfrey, a young reporter for a local newspaper called The Week, during an interview. Godfrey, skeptical and intrigued, was assigned to a story involving a rising number of eyewitness accounts eerily similar to Lorianne Andrizzi's, at her own request, that eventually brought her to Andrizzi. Days earlier, her hunting had brought her into the office of John Fredrickson, the local animal control officer. As the two began discussing the story and the reports, Fredrickson opened a drawer and removed a manila folder with one word printed across the top. Werewolf. You're listening to Myths and Mysteries. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. There are busts of King Tut that also show an elongated skull. Taunting the police, chiding them, daring them to capture him. And finally, he invented a name for himself, Jack the Ripper. Analysis of the grand features suggests that this animal was indeed at least 40 feet long. He could have easily eaten up a man. I expect that we'll keep looking uh, from now on until we find him or find out what happened. The story gained traction, and what Godfrey thought would entertain readers for only a couple of weeks has become something of a legend. Accounts kept pouring in, and others from the past were dug up, dating as far back as the 1930s. Tellings were both unbelievable and convincing, as witnesses reported their children being chased through the woods, wolf-like creatures on two legs attempting to claw their way into houses, two-legged canines attacking barn animals, and a terrifying encounter where an 18-year-old Doristine Gibson claimed the beast jumped on the back of her car. Gibson was driving home late on a rainy October 31st, yes, Halloween, when her right front wheel jolted. She stepped out of her car afraid to see what she might have hit, but found no sign of an injured animal. Like a scene from a thriller, she heard a noise and looked to the side of the road. 
Squinting into the darkness, she saw an oversized wolfish creature burst from a cornfield's edge and charge straight toward her on two legs. She slid into the driver's seat and sped away, but not before the creature allegedly leapt onto the trunk of her car, falling off moments later because of slippery conditions. Doris Dean, though frightened, used the same route to return home with a friend, and both reportedly saw the creature again, hunched over just at the edge of her vision. This same two-mile segment of road, and the surrounding area, is the location of both Lorian Andrizi's and Doris Dean Gibson's encounters, and host to many of the most unusual sightings. Bray Road, named after the family whose land it rests on, is a popular shortcut that connects two main roads and is often used to hasten trips to the local hospital. Linda Godfrey drew attention to the isolated area as a hotbed for creepy encounters when she unknowingly gave the creature its name, one that is still known by most cryptozoological communities today. The Beast of Bray Road The Beast of Bray Road became a local phenomenon, much like other regionally located cryptids such as the Loch Ness Monster or the American Jersey Devil. Locals seizing a marketing opportunity with saw werewolf cookies, t-shirts, and silver bullet beer specials. As you can imagine, more than one individual would run in with the law, trespassing on the land surrounding Bray Road. The Beast even had influence in local government. On one occasion, a local state representative campaigned using a man in a werewolf suit with a pen, insinuating he had the creature's vote. Much like the local politician in our second episode, who used a chupacabra hunting campaign, Wisconsin's werewolf-endorsed politician won the election. Perhaps the cleverest use of the Bray Road Beast was a man arrested with a loaded handgun outside of a residential home. The defendant, accused of lurking, pled innocent by reason of self-defense. He was, he claimed, only armed to protect himself from the beast of Bray Road. The judge saw through the argument, however, and sentenced the man because, among other things, the bullets in his 9mm weren't silver. Sightings of Wisconsin's famed beast have continued for years, and what started as a work project has turned into a lifelong pursuit for Godfrey. The beast of Bray Road, and creatures like it, are seen attacking neighborhood pets, jumping into cornfields, clambering over rooftops, or dragging dead animals into the brush using its hands or paws. Scott Bray, the current resident of the farm on Bray Road, has also encountered the creature and believes it exists. So, what is this two-legged terror with the head of a wolf? As always, theories abound, but we'll get to that in a bit. First. We want to recognize that even in the cryptozoological community, the Beast of Bray Road is often considered its own entity. That being said, its features do accurately place it within another circle of even more widespread sightings. We're talking, of course, about dogmen. The term werewolf can sometimes create a stigma, as it usually indicates a supernatural transformation is involved, which some find less credible. There are as many names for this upright canid as there are locations where it can be found, and many have adopted dogman, manwolf, or other iterations, with researchers each having their preference. 
If you punch one of these phrases into your search engine, you may find it associated with the state of Michigan or Wisconsin. Dogman sightings are, however, perhaps one of the most widespread phenomena in the world. Upright canines have been reported in nearly every state and across the globe. France has the loup garou, the cousin of Louisiana's Cajun dogman the rougarou. Germany, South Africa, Canada, and multiple South American nations join the list of residences as well, just to name a few. Jeff Cornelius, a Michigan repo man, encountered a dogman on a dark June night in 2005 while attempting to locate a truck that was to be repossessed. Jeff pulled his own truck up to a yard where the vehicle was suspected to be kept and was peering into the window of a shed that he thought might contain the truck he was looking for when he heard a twig snap somewhere to his left. He turned to see a large, upright, dark and furry canine creature that was growling at him and clearly upset. Jeff took off running toward his truck with the beast in hot pursuit. When he reached the truck, he spun it around and shone his headlights toward the shed, but the dogman had vanished into the night. Jeff described the creature to Linda Godfrey as five and a half feet tall, hunched forward with its front legs held straight out, with a large head that was covered with fur and topped with pointed ears. He said that the only way he could describe the monster was a werewolf. A Selma, Alabama man named Carey was fishing from his boat near the shore of the Alabama River when he had a harrowing encounter with a dogman. It was beginning to get dark when Carey noticed that his dog, Sarge, was agitated by something on shore. A massive upright canine between six and seven feet tall was charging down the riverbank towards the boat on only its hind legs. The creature was hunched forward, four limbs held in front, with dark red-brown fur, yellow eyes, and pointed ears. The beast was in the river only ten feet away when Carey got his boat's motor started and picked up his handgun. At the sound of the motor, the dogman stopped, and Carey fired nine shots at it. The creature retreated back into the trees, seemingly unhit or just unharmed by the hail of bullets. Describing the dogman's attack, Carey would later tell Linda Godfrey, Drool was just flying. He was on kill mode. One characteristic of the man-wolf sets it apart from many of its cryptid contemporaries and has even some skeptics inclined to acknowledge the possibility of its existence. Nearly all sightings of dogmen describe the creature the exact same way. Massive, typically between 5 and 8 feet tall when standing upright, with shaggy fur covering most of the body. The color has some variants, but dark brown and gray, or some red tint on the body of the beast, are the most common reports. Other than the head, which boasts an elongated snout, oversized teeth, reflective yellow-green tinted eyes, and large ears that rest on the top of the head, the body is described as humanoid, in that it stands often on two legs, with arms able to come to the creature's sides, and elbow and knee joints that allow it to carry prey, and kneel down. The hands, or paws, are elongated, though they still retain their canine appearance. Lastly, dogmen are typically able to walk either upright or drop down on all fours, and are often described as walking with their knees facing backwards, due to our four-footed friend's ankles bending backwards so their paws can rest on the ground. Upright canids are also said to always be found near a water source, and frequent some certain unusual areas, such as cemeteries or tombs, Native American structures, military bases, and even areas known for UFO sightings.
As you can imagine, opinions on these creatures range from skepticism to out of this world. No, really, aliens. Those who believe the creature exists break into a wide variety of camps. Some claim, due to the vast number of sightings, that the creature must exist, but is simply an unknown animal or variation of a known animal. A flesh-and-blood cryptid, perhaps endangered, that should be put into our children's textbooks if found, or a wolf or bear that has adapted to walk bipedally. Similar to this theory, others believe that the creature is an animal, but one thought to be extinct, along the same lines as a saber-toothed tiger. The main candidate from this line of thinking is the dire wolf, a contemporary of the saber-tooth thought to have been around 150 pounds when it walked the earth. Though it is a wolf, there aren't any known accounts of dire wolves walking upright. Some also believe that the dogman is a simple mistake of identity, and is in fact just an ordinary creature or a hoaxer. This is where things get really interesting. Another pattern of thinking revolves around the idea that these creatures are a form of spirit or entity. The idea of a half-man, half-dog is one that has been around for centuries, after all, if not longer. Many Egyptian hieroglyphs depict Anubis, the god of embalming and the dead, who walks with the body of a man and the head of a jackal. Jackals, interestingly, were known to be found around cemeteries and tombs, one of the known haunts of the alleged dogman. Much of the talk of dogman spirits, though, come to us from the Native American tradition. It's widely believed in many different tribes and Native American cultures that a man-wolf exists, and in some cases, may even be a protector. Different tongues have different names for just such a creature, and some groups even believe that an entire world exists outside of ours, with monsters and otherworldly creatures finding a sort of window from their world to ours. While definitely being one of the more outlandish theories for skeptics to handle, it does account for some of the difficulty in finding such creatures, and also the difficulty hunters have in harming them, or locating dogmen they believe to have harmed. The spirit world leads us into the last of the ideas on wolfmen. The belief that there are other worlds or separate realities from ours is not only common in some circles, but has often reared its head in our other episodes. Could this creature be less of a spirit and more of an interdimensional traveler dropping in for a terrifying visit? And what episode would be complete without mention of aliens? In a discussion about half-men, half-canines, the thought that these beasts might in fact be extraterrestrials is not that far-fetched, and definitely has its supporters. These would state that the creatures are alien coming for their own purposes, and that we are fortunate to glimpse them momentarily. It is also believed that upright canids could be a type of scout party left centuries ago by interplanetary visitors, simply waiting to take dominion over Earth when we are gone. There is one thing most all dogman truthers can agree on. They give us pause for concern. Ladies and gentlemen, we are very fortunate and excited to have the amazing Linda Godfrey on the studio line with us to answer some questions about Dogman. As we mentioned earlier in this episode, Linda covered the initial Beast of Bray Road sightings, and she literally wrote the book, or actually several books, on Dogman and Upright Canines, and she's the foremost authority on them in the U.S. 
So Linda, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We are so thrilled to have you on as actually our first interview. Wow, well, I'm very honored to be your first interview, and thanks so much for having me. So I figured we'd lead off with a really deep question that is on everybody's minds, which is, what's your opinion of the Legend of Dogman song that Steve Cook recorded? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually fairly well known. Um, he was always very candid about that song from the beginning. He meant it as an April Fool's joke. And he mixed together a few old lumber camp legends, you know, from Michigan lore, um, a few kind of odd newspaper reports, and then just sort of made up the rest and put it to music. And it was this kind of spoken ballad thing. And the um, chorus was always that it comes back in the seventh year of every decade. Mm -hmm. And he intended it, uh, he was going to sell CDs of his music and donate it to an animal shelter. And then after he played it, people started calling in. And this was in 1987, five years before the Beast of Bray Road story broke, but, um, or maybe four, four years. But it didn't really get around to, um, you know, the, it didn't go national the way the Beast of Bay Road one did for some reason. But people were calling him nonetheless and saying, hey, this thing isn't any joke. I saw it or my grandpa saw it or, you know, my so-and-so saw it. And he was kind of taken aback by it. Um, but then when the Beast of Bay Road story first ran, which was over um, New Year's Eve in 91-92, he called me and said, hey, we got this thing in Michigan, too. So that was kind of how that went. Um, and then there were some later things that he also promoted that um, were shown to be hoaxes, something called the Gable film. Some people might have um, heard of that. And yes. Yeah, and he actually confessed that on national TV on Monster Quest. Oh, wow. Uh, along with the guy who made the, made the film. So, yeah, so that one, it's... In some ways, um, it's good to know when there are so few things in this field that you can put an actual pin in and say, yes, this is real, or yes, that's a hoax, or we know what this is. That um, It's as bad as that uh, was because it caused furious debate for years. Right. Um, at least we know what it was, you know, and, and I don't think you can get much stronger than having two people confess on national TV. No, certainly not. So the two of you have spoken a couple of times, but not necessarily collaborated on anything. Right. Yeah, he had called me, and, um, you know, we would communicate once in a while when the other one had something to uh, to share. You know, I'd say, here's a Michigan story you might like, etc. And he was actually um, a guest on and, and a member of an old Yahoo group that I had started called Unknown Creature Spot. Now it's, today it's a Facebook uh, group, but it was um, yeah, it's been at least ten years since we had that, and and so he sort of introduced that into the group, and that's where it began to be um, chewed on, no pun intended. <laughs> um, well, we mentioned a little bit earlier in in an earlier portion of the podcast. Um, not only did you write the book on the Beast of Bray Road and Dogman, but you did actually name the Beast of Bray Road, correct? Well, I came up with that title, yes, for the newspaper story, because right from the get-go, people were saying things like, well, I saw this thing, and if there was such a thing as a werewolf, 
this is what it would look like, you know, because it was standing on high legs. It had the body and head of like a wolf or a German shepherd. You know, it was five and a half to six feet tall, stooped over a little bit. And I knew what they were trying to get at. They were using the term werewolf because they just didn't have anything else to describe such a creature with. And I don't think that most of them believed it was an actual, you know, howling, um, phase of the moon changing sort of Hollywood style werewolf. They just didn't know how else to refer to it. And I've never thought that it was one of those things, you know, that you take the old picture of uh, uh, Lon Chaney or Jack Nicholson spouting the fur and, you know, <laughs> the torturous muscles getting elongated and all that kind of thing. Um, I don't think that's what happens. There could be other forms of sort of a supernatural nature that, um, you know, you can get into, but... Um, not, that wasn't involved with what these people were seeing there on Bray Road at first. And I just thought, well, beast is a nice generic word that really can refer to any animal. So, and it also fits so well with uh, Bray Road. I had that alliteration thing going. So, right, right. Uh, so I suggested the title, and the newspaper used it, and it just went from there. Now, Linda, you're one of the most knowledgeable and respected writers in this field. Um, particularly in relation to the dog man or the man wolf. But way back when you first started writing about the Beasts of Bray Road um, in the early 90s, did you have any idea what kind of legs that story would have? None. None. Absolutely none. Um, my editor and I talked about it at the time. I remember this really clearly. And we were kind of chuckling that, oh, local people would have fun with it for a couple of weeks and then they'd forget about it and that would be that. Mm -hmm. And we never could have been more wrong because almost as soon as it was printed, um, a sister newspaper picked it up and put it out on AP, and then all the local TV stations, Milwaukee and Madison, were seen, started coming to the newspaper office and going out there and interviewing, and then the national ones, and it was being picked up by um, newspapers coast to coast, literally, and... Um, it just kind of turned crazy. We had buses full of tourists from Illinois coming out there and uh, riding out on Bray Road and then going to the bar, which gave them a silver bullet special, and there were werewolf cookies at the bakery. And, <laughs> you know, it was completely unexpected. It, and it wasn't anything I had ever aspired to do. Um, I actually took that job with the newspaper because I was more interested, really, at that time, and doing editorial cartoons and um, other sh and comic strip and that kind of thing, and illustrations, commercial illustrations, all of which I did do during the 10 years I wrote for that newspaper. I also became a reporter and uh, was writing during all that time. And, you know, people sometimes have the mistaken impression that, well, I wrote this article, and then right away I used that opportunity to write the book, and... Um, really, that's very far from the truth, too, because I worked for that newspaper, as I said, at least 10 more years, and during that whole time, I may have written like four, four or five at the most um, short updates. When something would come in to me um, to write about, I would try and apprise the public of it, you know, and put it in the paper, but it didn't amount to much, you know, but... Um, on the other hand, that's another important point, because right from the get-go, not only were all the media coming to me, but I suddenly became the go-to person for people who had seen 
these upright wolf-like creatures and did not have anywhere else to report them because really very few people, if any, were interested in the topic at the time. You know, Bigfoot um, was much more popular and um, that, that was also a, a key factor because if I hadn't been getting those uh, reports from people, and again, I wasn't like advertising for them. They were just finding me. And mind you, this was back in the time um, before we had the inter internet the way that it is now. There was no Facebook. Very few people had their own email even. You know, they had to track me down to the newspaper and send snail mail or, you know, call me at the newspaper. Wow. So, and you have to be determined to do that. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And that impressed me. And when I interviewed the original witnesses out by Bray Road, you know, it struck me at that time that these were sincere people who had been really frightened by something. And I felt sort of humbled that they were, you know, choosing to share their story with me. And I continued to feel that way over the 10 years that people continued to find me and say they just basically wanted to talk to someone who wouldn't think they were crazy and that if someone was keeping track they wanted their experience to be part of that and I felt sort of like I'd been entrusted with um, keeping folklore in the making um, in some sort of format that people would be able to refer to in years to come you know so people went go back someday and say oh what was that werewolf all about and oh it was just this or that well they would have instead um, of just a conjecture, they would have it all written down. So um, about, uh, let's see, it was 2013, so it was 11 years after that sighting, that's when I decided I better write that book. And I actually wrote um, a, a historical true crime story first because I thought probably nobody was going to want to publish a book about something that looked like a werewolf. And I was, I was probably right because they, uh, it was a regional publisher at Trails Media that took my book, The Poison Widow, and then said, well, what else have you got? And that's when I said, um, well, <laughs> people think it's a werewolf. <laughs> and, you had the end. Yeah, and, and really, um, they were interested in my angle, which was not just telling scary stories, I, and that still never has been my angle. It was, I wanted to tell the story of not just the creature and what it looked like and why the people were frightened, but what happened to the town and how the people were affected, and um, just sort of the, the birth of this legend and, and how it all came together and, and how it continued. Well, you certainly seem to be uh, continuing that, being the person that people uh, entrust their information with. You seem like you're very active, a very busy lady, and certainly here we are just a few more years down the road still talking about it. Yeah, it's been like, what, 26 years, I think, something like that, 26 going on 27 years, and I certainly never thought that it would go this long. Now, I have written books on other topics. Um, I think the one, I just turned in my latest uh, manuscript, and I think that'll be number 19 published, but um, wow. some people might be familiar with the Weird U.S. series um, mm -hmm. from Barnes and Noble, and um, I was privileged to uh, co-author the Weird Wisconsin, and then to author the um, Weird Michigan books in that in that series. So that kind of broadened my perspectives a little bit. Um, and I did a book for a New York publisher called um, uh, Lake and Sea Monsters, uh, another one on werewolves, another one on myths, 
and there have been different things that I've ventured into over these years. So it hasn't all been just on something derived uh, straight from the Beast of Bray Road. Um, and the, the other thing, you know, the, the third point that I realized early on, going way back there, was um, the shock that this was not just a local thing, not just a regional thing, but a national and international phenomenon. Because mm. um, even in the first years, I remember I got a letter from the Virgin Islands of somebody who had seen the same thing there um, from France. People were telling me that um, either they or someone they knew who had been in occupied France or um, behind enemy lines there had been out in the countryside and uh, you know seen the same thing. So um, it, it was shocking to realize that there was this whole world of sightings that had never been collected and put together so that people could realize it, it was a thing, you know, and uh, most people who saw it, and I think this is still true today, I, I think only a certain percentage of the sightings, and it's not a large percentage, are really ever shared. Most people are either frightened or they feel it's a deep um, spiritual experience or they're afraid that people are going to make fun of them, which is probably the largest sure. percentage, and, and it's accurate. I mean, I can certainly understand that. It's not like I have not... Uh, you know, taken my turn of, of uh, being poked fun at for daring to keep track of people saying that they saw what looked like a werewolf. You know, I'm sure. To, to me, it's reporting, and you know, to other people, it's just well, that's just silly. Why would anybody bother? But this is something that really affects those who have a genuine encounter. Um, most of them say there isn't a day that goes by that they don't think about it. They often wonder why they were singled out. A few continue to have experiences. Some have dreams about it. Um, it seems to be something that creeps under people's skin and, and sort of sticks with them. And, you know, they want some closure, or they at least want someone who will listen and record what they experienced in hopes that someday we can make sense of it. That is something we wanted to ask you about a little bit in doing some digging We've looked through your books, uh, Real Wolfmen, Monsters Among Us, um, American Monsters, Beast of Bray Road, and it certainly seems like a lot of, a lot of your books are made up of uh, segments with stories submitted by eyewitnesses, and it certainly seems like a lot of these people are not inherently trying to profit themselves in any way, but they're just regular people genuinely uh, experiencing something out of the ordinary and kind of coming to you to make sense of it. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, I'd say that's a very good way to describe it, you know, and uh, the people who submit their stories are not paid other than, um, you know, so, uh, free books, but it's nothing that you would want to pay people for because then you would encourage um, hoaxers and, and fraud coming in to, you know, uh, collect whatever the reward was. It's rather the same way as, as it is with newspaper um, stories. The subjects for newspaper stories um, don't stand to make anything usually either, unless it's something so incredibly spectacular that, you know, all the, the uh, shows are, there's a bidding more on, they're, they're talking about it or something. And these things are certainly not like that. You know, it's... Um, and most of them are fairly simple. You know, there are people are driving along the road, 
or they're um, hunting or they're hiking or somewhere and they come face to face with these creatures, there's this momentary shock. Um, oftentimes the creature looks at them and demonstrates that it is not afraid of the people in one way or another and then almost in every case runs off. You know, so there's that's another thing that, that struck me right from the beginning is there's um, a lot of continuity in all of these reports, um, more so than you'd expect if it were all individual hoaxers or, or something like that. So, um, I, you know, and I think that's a very important thing to know. There are different types. I don't think everybody is seeing the same thing because some um, have different descriptions that fall into their own subcategories. So um, that's an unusual thing that I've come to understand more and more over the years, too. One thing that I was struck by as I was doing the research um, is that obviously coming face to face with a dog man would be terrifying. But I, I, you made a point to mention in your books that it seems like nobody is ever actually physically harmed by a dog man. Not that has been reported to me personally. You know, I've heard of other stories. Um, there was one, um, a, a family that was attacked by several of them um, sort of besieged in Kentucky and um, there are a couple others that um, are, are kind of known out there you know by people who follow the topic and my policy is I if I'm not a person if I'm not the one who personally investigated something I don't like to comment on it one way or the other because you know I have no way of, of uh, judging the witnesses for myself or um, you know, being there when evidence is, is looked at or anything like that. So I don't know. I, I keep an open mind. But what I can say is that over 26, 27 years, and during many, many hundreds, I don't even know how many exactly, over that time, I have not had anyone who's had more than um, like a script. I had one man who was walking on a state forest trail up in Canada near Quebec and came face to face with one on a trail and they both kind of stopped and it lunged at him and he said it was it, he thought it was his mistake it was kind of like when you're in a grocery aisle and you know you come up against somebody with a shopping cart and neither one of you knows the, <laughs> the correct way to go <laughs> that's that's my analogy but that was how he was describing it and he thinks he sort of jumped in its way and it grazed his flank and you know, tore a shirt and made kind of a jagged tear on on his side and he had to go and get stitches and he told them it was a bear he said because he didn't think they'd ever believe what it was and that's the only real injury um, you know I had a guy who had his shirt ripped down the back by they were being chased by he and three others were being chased by one in South Milwaukee believe it or not wow. but near the, near, near the Lake Michigan um, shore which happens to be a place where there have been a number of sightings and um, other than that people are just very very frightened I'm surprised nobody's run off the road um, from fright yes so, definitely had that thought yeah I hope I hope there hasn't we just didn't know about it it seems like this gentleman near Quebec may, must have been very very polite to come across an encounter and then come away with a, uh, a scratch and say it was my fault it really was my fault like the, the grocery store experience. Well, he was being truthful. He yeah. was being truthful, you know, and it's not the kind of thing that I think anybody would ever consider making up or think of if they did intend to make something up. And, um, you know, again, he 
he really he didn't want his name known or anything. A lot of these people um, are really you know well employed or highly thought of and don't want their names out there because they're afraid it'll hurt their careers. Right. You know, and again, that's another important point that has been true from the very beginning until now is that I noticed even with the first batch of witnesses, it was a very diverse group of people. You know, I had people of different ethnic origins, ages, um, genders, you name it, uh, incomes. It was very diverse group and that still happens today. I had a, uh, one man who lived near Lake Geneva uh, who had a very high clearance with the Milwaukee airport and had to, I can't say what, what he did even he didn't want his exact occupation known, mm -hmm. but he had to leave usually at 4 a.m. to drive to Milwaukee and he had several very close up sightings um, in this lake neighborhood that he, that he lived in and he said, I, I can't let anybody know that I saw this, or they'd fire me, you know, wow. because my job, um, you know, requires what they would call a stable mind, and they'll accuse me of not having a stable mind. I think, for me, the most terrifying thing about some of these um, man-wolf encounters are the multiple accounts of the creature looking in people's windows or scratching right. at their at their doors, and uh, it's so natural to be afraid of things kind of out there in the woods. But we feel like we're supposed to be safe in our own homes, and the thought of a a beast like Dogman trying to get inside of our homes is kind of scary. Have you have you heard any accounts of Dogman actually getting inside of a home? Um, again, I have not. Personally, I there are some out there that you know that I, I do tend to believe um, because they can be sort of aggressive. I've had ones where uh, more than one where they get up on somebody's roof, and yes. sometimes more than one up on the roof, you know, as if they're prowling around for an opening to drop in, or you know, who knows what they have in their minds. I find that really terrifying. Um, and then there was one um, story that I had investigated and was in Real Wolfman that was later made into an episode in the sci-fi um, channel. And that was the one, I called it the Maine Wolf Pack. It happened up in, in Maine. And I think they just called it the pack on, on that show. But it was a couple sitting out on their front porch at 10.30 at night. They had a habit of sitting out with a cup of coffee and um, shining a flashlight on deer herds that came to drink in their pond. And they got a bad feeling, turned on the, the searchlight, and there were five upright wolf-like beings approaching them from 20 feet or so away. And they were flanking them. There were three coming on one side and two on the other, you know, which is a hunting strategy that wolves in the wild do use. Mm. And they were able to just back into the house, and they called 911, and 911 told them to call the game warden, and the game warden said, just stay in your house. Duh. Some <laughs> 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 morning, and that's what they did. Um, but they were they moved out not too long after that. It was a, a rent a home they were renting, and they uh, moved to a different place. And don't blame them at all. Can't blame them. <laughs> <laughs> there no. Were, so, um, oh. I actually read that story this morning. I just finished reading Real Wolf Men this morning, and I read that story, and that was the first thought I had was I would be moving immediately. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do, and it's also true when there are multiple witnesses, um, they can't handle having the other people, 
being part of a group that they all know that it happened and um, people will break up friendships or they'll move away. Uh -huh. um, it happens so often when there's any kind of a group sighting. Now, there were some stories in American Monsters um, and in Real Wolfmen as well where people believe that the creature maybe not necessarily telepathically communicated with them, but they could get sort of a sense of the creature's intent. Uh, one woman believed that a dog man communicated to her that she should let it into her home, for example. Um, what, right. are, what are your thoughts about this telepathic ability? Yeah, and again, from the very beginning, I've had people um, telling me this. It's usually the last thing that they'll say in the interview. Um, and the, it'll almost always go like, there's one more thing, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but... <laughs> and then I hear it and I say, no, I can't think, if I think you're crazy, I have to think an awful lot of other people are crazy. Because they'll often describe it as not necessarily, not necessarily telepathic, and it's not like in words or the king's English, but they get a distinct impression that it is looking at them and thinking, like one woman said, I felt it was telling me that if I told anybody about it, it would come and get me. Mm -hmm. um, another one said, I felt it was telling me that it could jump up on my car if it wanted to. You know, things like that. They get impressions of it doing things or being superior to them, um, that sort of thing. And there are actually, um, you know, uh, over the years I've realized there have been a fair number where there do seem to be elements of the supernatural in the encounters. They're in the minority. Most of the sightings are, are if you don't count that look of superiority in, in that one feeling, most of them are just um, not doing anything that a natural wolf or dog couldn't do. Walking on its hind legs is not a supernatural act. It's not normal, especially in the wild. Um, and normally indicates an injured animal. And almost no one has said, yeah, I could tell that its right paw was lopped off, you know, or, um, you know, it, it appeared to be real sick. Or, I, I usually don't hear that from people, so I don't think that's it. But um, the book Monsters Among Us came about because I realized that I had sort of been self-selecting over the years when something seemed too wacky, you know, I just didn't use it because, or put it in my books anyway. I'm going to put it in a blog or, or tell about it, but... Um, I realized that there was a whole set, when I, when I actually sat down and looked at it, um, that these people did not seem any different than the other group of witnesses, you know, who didn't see it doing anything like this. They seemed, uh, they seemed to have the same amounts of education, you know, it was again a diverse group of people, um, different ages, men, women, and I thought, well, I can't just play to my own biases and pretend these things weren't reported to me, and it's about time that I put them in. And in that book, I also was trying to connect and see if they did have any association with things like the full moon or um, solar flares, UFO sightings nearby, that sort of thing. And while I did not have enough to make it statistically significant, I did have um, more than I thought would show up of all of those elements. And um, the solar flares... The solar flares actually turned out to seem to have the most influence wow. on people saw these or not, which I thought not was the one I would have picked. No, no, but I thought that was very interesting. And there also seemed, now I've found another thing um, out lately too, there seems to be 
some correlation with magnetic electromagnetic fields and, and magnetic um, earth areas. I'm going to be. I just finished this last book two weeks ago. I'm still recovering from, from my <laughs> my uh, last month in the hermit cave. You know, I literally wouldn't go out of the house for like a week. Oh and my. I'm Trying to get that done. Yeah. So. Um, but again, this and this one goes even farther in some ways, you know, and it deals with legends and how true the legends might be about some of these creatures, and, and then it gets into some real far-out stuff. But again, I felt this is part of the material. My original mission was to make people aware that people, other people were seeing these things and what they did. And if I was going to truly investigate, then I shouldn't be allowing my own biases to affect what I put into a book. And people people are always free to accept or reject whatever I write. I don't really have any big agenda as far as what people should do with it or think about it. Um, some people um, tell me that it took them like 10 years of reading about these to finally come to a decision that there might be something to them. Other people accepted it instantly, maybe had had an experience. Um, and the amount of acceptance people have is all over the map. Some people um, think I should do one thing or another, more or less, you know. It's sort of interesting, in the cryptozoological world, there has developed sort of a, a canon or a Bible of how investigations are supposed to be done, you know. And some people have one idea that we, we've separated into camps. I'm like, hey, this is a big tent universe, and as long as you're being fair about it and truthful about it, giving people their chance to say what they want to say. Um, you know, I think there's room for a very um, great number of different investigatory um, sorts of techniques. Some people want to write about it. Some people don't want to write about it. Um, that's fine. Some people want to just tell scary stories. That's what they do. Um, I think that it takes all of these things together to really present the full true picture. And I certainly don't feel like, you know, I was selected as the only one who should ever write about them. I think it's very normal um, and actually uh, was bound to happen that we would start to have this. Uh, in the last three or four years, it's really kind of exploded. I'm sure the two of you are well aware where we have people um, with shows that just read stories about what these creatures have done. Um, with shows that uh, cater to only a certain type of dogman or just phantom things or Bigfoot and dogman and, and lots of people have their own beliefs and again I'm like that doesn't bother me we all have different beliefs on everything so why not you know in this as long as people are honest not trying to hoax I'm happy it does kind of feel like in of all groups or uh, types of people that uh, a group that would appreciate cryptozoology should maybe be one of the most open-minded groups amongst each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one would think so, but it, it really isn't that way. You know, it's, um, there's it, probably the sharpest division is whether these things are all flesh and blood or all spirit. Um, that, and that, to me, it's a sliding continuum, you know, and I can, that's another tangent we can go off on. But, <laughs> but it, it tends to really mobilize people and sort of paralyze them into one position. And it's hard then when you meet up with another um, encounter or some people have been, um, had their minds changed only because a person happened to them. I had 
to two sort of well-known big, Bigfoot hunters who were out looking for Bigfoot one day and ran into Dogman. And they wrote me and said, hey, we thought this was bunk, but now we have to say, yeah, we saw it. And that was no flat-snouted ape. So, or, or snouted ape, excuse me, I should have said that. Now, are those the two gentlemen that actually shot it and then watched it run away uh, unaffected, seemingly? Um, I think they may be one of the... That's happened a lot. That's you know, it's not, it's not uncommon for Bigfoot or for Dogman. That's something that I was meaning to ask you about is, um, and you led beautifully right into it, is that some there's a lot of debate about whether a Dogman is a physical creature, like an animal, whether it's a spiritual creature or even whether it's possibly an interdimensional creature, which is something that we talk about a lot on this show. Um, and you can, there's sort of evidence for both sides, right? Because there are footprints that are left. It does actually have to eat, but also you have these elements like it seemingly not being affected by bullets. Right. Although there are times when it is. It's almost like there's a, a sliding scale of, how much density, how much of this world um, it has taken on on one end and then um, on the other end being able to do things like track people invisibly, people report that. Somewhere in the middle is this, you know, bouncing bullets off its chest sort of thing. And and not even just bullets, one of my favorite stories like that was um, in South America, I can't remember exactly which country offhand, but um, one of them showed up at a family's birthday party where they had all their relatives. It was kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And a bunch of men charged it with, like, hoes and rakes and chairs, you know, and just beat the thing up, pummeled it into the ground, and uh, went back in the house to call for help. And when they came back out, it was gone. You know, it just gotten up and, and run away. And I've heard that from people, too. You know, and really the only way that I can sort of reconcile the disparity in these different types of, of reports is that um, it is their their uh, incorporate sorry I'm I'm messing up my words tonight uh, corporeal or not goes on a sliding scale the same way that if you think about different energies that we know of and interact with and that build our world we have light for instance. Um, there isn't just like one degree of light where it's either light, all light, or there's no light. We have everything from um, different colors and spectrums that our eyes cannot perceive on either end, um, and different gradations of uh, lightness and darkness. Same with sound. You know, you can blow a dog whistle. We, you won't hear it, but your dog will. That kind of thing. With infrasound and ultrasound. Um, and you can go on with uh, all of these things. And maybe it's the same thing with the electromagnetic field. Um, morphic fields are supposed to be an electromagnetic field factor that sort of lays out the pattern of, of uh, any living creature's body or, or whatever it is. We can get into all kinds of technicalities. But to me, it just seems like if everything else in the universe goes in this sliding scale, um, right. Perhaps, and and I can go in and give you Bible examples and other, you know, uh, mythology instances in mythology where things seem to be able to go from place to place that way, or change themselves to fit into whatever uh, modality or world they happen to to be in or want to be in. Hmm. Continuing down that line just a little bit, something I was fascinated by 
in one of your other interviews was you mentioned that in some of these supernatural sounding encounters um, that they could be related to people with, I guess what I'm going to call an enhanced mental state similar to like a tulpa trance. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was one of the earliest things that occurred to me. And I know people like my friend Nick Redfern have, have written about this. Um, I did a lot of research into uh, writings by different Native Americans and uh, found something similar in that. The, the tulpa is, you know, the, um, the Tibetan idea of a creature that is formed by um, a, a trainee, somebody who, there. I suppose that there are people that can do this automatically, but um, the particular people who have written about it took some type of training and were able to um, sort of project their psychic energy outward from them so that they could create a visible being. And one of the most famous ones, um, the person projected this sort of benign creature and it tended to get worse and worse each time and finally um, had to be um, drastically worked with because it was going out and doing things on its own power. Um, I found wow. another I found another instance, and I talked about this in one, in one of my books, it might, I can't remember if it was Monsters Among Us or Wolfman, but um, it was a Native American medicine woman uh, who was, who had taken on someone for training and um, was sitting, sitting down across from this person and said, now watch very carefully, and the trainee said she could see the medicine woman's features changing from a lynx to a bear to a wolf and then back. And the training was like, how did you do that? What did you do? How, how did that happen? And the medicine woman said, well, it's simply a matter of which I choose to project. So again, she's, it's this idea of projecting this inner image, this inner energy. You know, I don't know if anybody knows precisely what the force is that carries this out, but that's what I meant earlier when I said, although I don't believe in the actual, you know, um, blood and muscle changing werewolf, there do seem to be some very widespread um, practices of people who, and normal, uh, very often it's uh, societies where there are nature-based uh, religions and that they're able to um, project this sort of image. So, and how would you know what you were seeing if you're out in the wild and one person is actually seeing an upright wolf who's a natural wolf that for some reason perhaps has had a minor um, mutation adaptation to have larger paws and, and a different sort of spinal um, construction so that it can walk and run upright when it wants to, which I think is, is possible and could happen, although we can't show it anywhere in the wild and I've tried for 26 years. Or that you're seeing something that is um, being projected by a human being somewhere. Or you're seeing an entirely different sort of creature that is coming in from elsewhere. That already exists in its own form, is not dependent on a human projecting it or hosting it or anything like that. But is just its own spirit self. There are all these different pop, uh, possibilities. And there are differences in the way these things appear that you can get some sort of hint usually. I know for myself, uh, I, there's no way I'm sticking around long enough to try and see if it's a projection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will yeah. never know. 
Exactly. You know, and people always say, well, what should I do if I see one of these things? And my answer, and, and I know that everybody's like, well, I would just stand there and point my camera at it or run up to it and take a picture. Well, um, not many people really would do that, I don't think, because um, they seem to exude this power, you know, most of them. And many of them give people the impression that they're being territorial. You know, it's like, this is my spot, you know, stay where you are. So there's, there's that sense coming from them. But my advice is always, if, if you do, if you're able to take shelter, like your car or your truck is right there, take the shelter and get in a safe place. Um, if you can't do that, just quickly and quietly leave the area and treat it with the respect that you would treat any other large predator-type animal that you might encounter wherever you are. Because we really don't know what they are. They could be all these different things. Um, and they probably are to my mind because there are the differences in the appearance that sort of indicate that. Um, you know, or they could be something none of us have even dreamed of yet. We just don't know enough and can't perceive enough to um, understand them yet. So if somebody were to hear this podcast and decided that they wanted to try to go out into the woods and see a dogman, you wouldn't recommend that, right? Well, I... You know, it, it's hard to say don't do that because, um, I mean, people go out in the woods hunting for everything. But um, I do think that there's a smaller, it, it's actually still a rather rare occurrence. And um, there are people who, people want to know where to start. And I say, well, you can look for reported sightings that are in areas near you, you know, and just take any other precautions that you would take walking through the woods or, or whatever, find out what's there because oftentimes the normal known animals, uh, you know, if you're up in Canada and you've got great grizzlies or brown bears in the area, um, you know, you've got to be <laughs> ready for something like that. Black bears, um, they don't attack very often, but they could. We have uh, cougars and mountain lions even going through Wisconsin, and they're taking over a lot more territory than they used to. Um, koi wolves. Wolves are mating with coyotes and producing very large carnivores that are not afraid to hang around the fringes of civilization. So you've got all these other things that are really more likely to get you. Than, uh, and if, if you see one of these dogmen, um, it may be because it wanted you to see it, is what a lot of people tend to think. Um, so, you know, I don't like to give people advice like, don't go here, don't go there. I do say don't trespass. I do like to tell people that Bray, Lo Bray Road is almost 100% um, privately owned and that they are very tired of people coming and shining their lights on their windows, you know, and hanging around at night. The cops do patrol regularly and give fines, um, even if you just stop by the side of the road, you know. So, um, it's something that you have to tread very lightly. And again, I do believe there's a much smaller population of the upright canines than there are Bigfoot. There seem, seem to be, just going by the number of sightings, many more Bigfoot existing around. You'd probably be likelier to see them. And actually, that's been true for me. Um, I've had much more luck with Bigfoot than Dogman. So um, just, just remember they're, they're rare and they happen... Um, seemingly at random. Perhaps it's not as random as it appears to us, but um, just something to, to respect. I was listening uh, 
to an interview with a Native American woman who had been uh, chased by a dogman, and she said that she believed the dogman to be a type of guardian, which struck me as interesting because I read in your book, Real Wolfmen, that Wisconsin has a, a an abundance of these Native American animal-shaped burial mounts, which Dogman is, is frequently seen near. Um, do you mm-hmm. believe, um, going back to some of the other things that we've discussed, do you believe Dogman is connected to those sites somehow? Well, there does seem to be a connection between, um, at least in southeastern Wisconsin, and by the way, south, southern Wisconsin has something like 96% of the world's animal-shaped, ancient effigy mounds. And some have burials in them and some don't. But um, when the settlers first came, uh, before they got here, these things, which are generally believed to be about 1,200 years old, uh, were here. The natives who were here didn't know really who built them, didn't really know what they were there for. But they had almost entirely terraformed and reshaped the landscape of southern Wisconsin. That's how many of them there were. And I was looking at a map one day, excuse me, and this was back around uh, 2005, 2006, and I was looking at a new uh, new book that had come out with a map of where um, what were mistakenly called lizard mounds. We now know they're either called water spirit mounds or water panther mounds. Wherever these things were, I thought, well, that pattern looks familiar, and a light went off in my head, and I grabbed a map where I've been putting pins of where the dogman sightings were in southern Wisconsin, and overlaid one on a transparency over the other, and it was like a perfect match. It was Mm. uncanny, just crazy, and um, I'd been trying to get an interview with, um, they they used to be called the uh, Winnebago, now we call them the Ho-Chunk. Uh, tribal people who are notoriously closed mouths about these things and wouldn't talk to me. And I called up their tribal chairman and told them what I found, and I had immediately had an interview with an elder and anthropologist who was very interested in this very thing. So it does seem to be that there's some connection between some of these sightings and these burial mounds. But there are also connections. It isn't, it isn't just those sacred areas in Wisconsin. I've also noticed connections to... Um, present or former military sites, um, present or former cemeteries, especially the older ones, um, crossroads and roadside, some of the same types of places where you find the phantom black dogs in the UK. Um, these all seem to have, and, and also water is another big one, especially fresh water, springs, that sort of thing. These all seem to be things that... Um, either attract or maybe they're just the natural territory of these creatures. The last question I've got for you before we let you go is that um, speaking of the creatures sort of being attracted to water, I've noticed that um, there are a lot of places where Bigfoot and Dogman sightings appear in close proximity to each other. Um, Right. Do you believe that there's some kind of a relationship between these two different creatures? Or do you think that's just because both of them need water? Well, you know, I always play devil's advocate and look at both sides, you know, trying to keep my reporter's hat still on, shredded and old and, you know, (laughs) tattered as it may be. But um, it does seem to me, you know, on one hand you can say, well, they both pursue deer. That seems to be a main staple of their diet. And so they're 
eating a lot of protein, when you eat a lot of protein, you need water, you need a good fresh water source. So that's one way to look at it. Um, some of my Native American friends in different parts of the country have told me that both of these creatures, the Dogman and the Bigfoot, are originally spirit creatures and that they come out of fresh water, fresh open water springs. Um, that, that is where you find the portals to their spirit world, which maybe we would call a world in another dimension or, um, you know, who knows, there are lots of different terms right now. So that's the other look at it. And then what I find, uh, again, when I'm mapping things out, which is something I, I try to do, I mean, GPS is great, you know, the global, all the, the, the Google Maps and everything are great, but I still like to work with hands-on paper maps because you can kind of get a bigger scenario just instantly looking at it. And, for instance, the Kettle Moraine State Forest in southern Wisconsin is something that um, appeared from the last glacier. It was carved out. When the glacier stopped, it stopped. So we've got this really noticeable divide where there's cornfields and flat, beautiful prairie, and then all of a sudden you've got these deep gorges and ravines with ridges between them that go for, you know, hundreds of miles. Um, it's, it's really a larger area than people think. And I noticed that wherever um, Bigfoot was being reported, I could put on one side of that dividing line, and the other side would almost always be the dogmen within this one certain territory. So I think they're territorial. I think they probably know enough to avoid one another. They're after the same things, but it also seems like um, the dogmen like forest, they like cornfield, but they don't mind the flat areas, and the Bigfoot seem as a general tendency, because you can find, um, you know, in, uh, in Samples of each that say the other, but as a general, they seem to like the craggy, the craggy areas, the deep divides, um, height, that sort of thing. So it's kind of like they've sort of each carved out their own territory where they mutually take advantage of, you know, what they want to eat, without getting in each other's way too much. That's just how it looks. I can't say that definitively. Melinda, we thank you so much for your time. Um, we are so thrilled to have you on the show. Before we let you go, where can our listeners get your books, and where can they submit their Dogman sightings to you? Well, everything is at lindagodfrey.com. You don't need any little Ws. It's just lindagodfrey.com. That is my WordPress blog. And again, because I was just finishing a book, it's shamefully neglected, but I usually do put podcast links up. And there's a list, uh, there's a page where you can see a list of my books. It has some links. You can get them, you know, just about anywhere that you get books. And you'll find also, if you go into the regular um, main blog page, you can find a form where you can write to me and um, submit. Or if you want uh, to talk by phone or whatever, let me know that. And that will go straight to my email, and I can get back to you from there. So, And everything else, you'll find there's an FAQ page. I'm working on my own, transferring my old Beast of Bray Road page to that site, too. But, again, it, it's all at lindagodfrey.com. Is there anything that you want to promote about your new book or anything you want to tell us, or is that still on the hush-hush right now? I can't say a lot about it until it's completely you know, accepted and everything, but... Um, 
it will have some really interesting uh, encounter stories and things like that coming at it from a different angle than I've really approached these things before. So just watch for it. It will be a big deal when I finally get everything, when I'm able to announce it, and that will also be at my WordPress blog. I'm also on, uh, my author Facebook is Linda S. Godfrey. Um, I'm on Twitter, although, again, my Twitter's been shamefully neglected. I'm usually much better at the social media. That last month is just like a crazy time, and, and I'm, I'm lucky if I, uh, you know, get dressed in the day. <laughs> you know? it, just, like it just gets crazy. Not that I'm a, a procrastinator. It's just that usually what happens is, well, I'm something of a procrastinator, but everybody starts sending me these fabulous things, and I'm like, oh, I had to get this in, i got to get that in. You know, or I see errors um, in the old things, and so it, it just ends up being kind of a, a, a pile on there at the last minute. But there also at my blog are stories and encounters of things that aren't in the book for one reason. Maybe they came at the wrong time frame and I felt it needed to be out there or um, it illustrates a certain thing. I'm getting ready to put a couple of that category up um, in the next couple of weeks. It's linked to my Twitter also. Um, so it's, again, it, it's all pretty much at the blog. But you'll see there are lots of things. And I, I detail, you know, a really... You look up, if you want to see um, my favorite personal experience with what I'm pretty quite sure was a Bigfoot, just uh, in, go and search, type in the search box, Bigfoot Branch, and it will take you to the full accounting of that with photos and everything. I will be doing that in about five minutes. I'm on Twitter <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, Linda, thank you again for your time. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the whole thing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we really enjoyed putting this episode together. And we hope that you guys enjoyed the interview as much as Zach and I definitely did. We each personally own some of Linda's books, and they're fantastic, so we're thrilled to have the chance to ask her some questions, both about her career and Dogmen, and then to learn more about this fascinating creature that she played such a big part in the story. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, and I know they say that you should never meet your heroes, but Linda was super awesome, very nice. I learned a lot just from talking to her, so I really recommend that you check out her books. You won't be able to put them down, and... Uh, Again, big thanks to Linda for appearing on our show. That'll do it for another episode of Myths and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it for you. And as always, we want to hear from you guys. You can reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook at Myths Podcast. And you can also reach out by sending us an email at MythsPodcast at gmail.com or send us episode recommendations or anything else you'd like to talk about by going to our website, MythsAndMysteriesPod.com One of the most important things and most helpful things you could do for us would be taking just a couple of minutes to go to the Apple Podcasts app, find our podcast, and leave us a review. We particularly enjoy the five-star kind, but we read every single one, and we really take the recommendations for how we can make episodes better to heart. We hope that you guys enjoyed the episode and the interviews, and as always, we'll look forward to seeing you in just a few weeks when we talk about Jack the Stripper. Yes, you heard that right. We'll see you next time.